Carrie Cranston is the president of the American Writers Museum. He took on the role in September 2016. Prior to this, he served as president of Fox College, a private career college in Chicago. He was a VP at Hill & Knowlton, a global PR firm, and led digital and web services with major clients. Director of tech and e-commerce at a local Chicago PR firm prior to that. Early in his career, he taught writing at several universities. He worked at DePaul University Library and Koch's and Brentano's Bookstore. He has a BA in English from DePaul, an MA in English, and an MS in Library and Information Services. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Well, thanks for having me. Start off with uh, the mission of the American Writers Museum. It's to engage the public in celebrating American writers, past and present, and exploring their influence on our daily history, our identity, our culture, and our daily lives. So, how do American writers influence all of these things? Well, it's an interesting point. Um, probably, you know, you can look at certain writers and see a very direct influence. Um, so I'll give an example of Frederick Douglass, who uh, we have a special exhibit on right now. Um, you know, you're talking about a writer who moved minds as far as the notion of abolition and, um, and leading us into the Civil War and then fighting for the freedoms of the slaves who were coming up to fight, um, getting them equal pay, getting them any pay at all. So there's a writer who took his ability to use language and used it to influence people and to make change. So obviously that had a huge impact on our history and our culture. So he was persuasive enough in his rhetoric and his writing to change legislation. Well, to change minds um, and to change hearts, which eventually led to you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, which eventually led to, and he wasn't the only voice of that era, obviously, no. Sojourner Truth and, and a host of others were writing, but he was incredibly influential. He was extremely well-known. He was on the speaking circuit. He was writing amazing speeches. He wrote the story of his life as a slave and his escape to freedom, and that book became extremely popular. He wrote a second edition of it, you know, 10 years after he was out. Um, it was still the 1850s, and so these were things that were changing people's minds about how important abolition and, and the freedom of the slaves was. So that's a direct, here's somebody writing. You can go back also to the Founding Fathers. You can look at different writers who had a direct impact, um, but obviously there are also writers who have maybe a less direct impact, um, but still affect us on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Stories that stay with our culture for a long time, that people continue to read, to reinterpret, um, and therefore to feel, you know, that writer still has an influence on them. So you could take The Great Gatsby as an example, you know, a, a book that was written a long time ago, but is still highly read, is still analyzed, is still thought about in its um, depiction of 
capitalism and our commerce-based culture, which of course is maybe different from what it was in the 1920s, maybe not so different from what it was in the 1920s. Um, so, you know, those types of issues are then discussed. And if new generations are reading that same book, then those people are still being influenced by it today. And there's movies made of uh, of it too, which uh, affects that culture as well. Yeah, and we, when we're the American Writers Museum, we are definitely about the concept of writing as a concept writ large. So we look mm -hmm. at all forms of writing. So yeah. that can include sports writers, it can include advertising copy, mm -hmm. and screenwriters, and television writers, and and today YouTube writers, critics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not. Literary. It's not just literary, which is what I think many people would would think. Yes, and and while we are about. looking at at some level of their impact on their history and culture, which may lead to more literature being pronounced, there is definitely the notion that we are looking at all forms of writing, speech writing, um, anything where the written word then takes on an impact and and is preserved and moved forward. Mm -hmm. Well, you've got an exhibit right now on Bob Dylan, and that's written, but it's controversial, too, the fact that he won the Nobel Prize. Yeah, and, and that was you know part of the conversation that led to us. It's a temporary exhibit up for a year. Mm. Um, but there's no denying the impact of songwriting. And he's not the, you know, we, we look at other songwriters in the museum. We look at Woody Guthrie and, and a host of others, and Tupac and Prince um, are all featured in, in different places. So um, the idea of songwriting in a special exhibit was not a stretch for us. And so we chose Dylan as a centerpiece of that because it was... You know, he's a prolific songwriter. He's a, a songwriter whose work has had an impact on our history and our culture. And um, the winning of the Nobel, as as much as people may have argued about it, it is still something then that is a question. Mm -hmm. um, so it should, is something that should be explored. I was uh, surprised to see that uh, Ishiguro puts up Dylan as one of his heroes, if not his greatest hero. That, that's, uh, yeah. It's amazing some of the people who are influenced by or or see Dylan in this respect. Um, you know, when we started working on this exhibit, we, as an institution, we don't have a central curator. We work with experts in different areas and fields. Um, and this museum was put together with 40-plus subject matter experts who helped to determine what would be in the more permanent exhibits. So when we do a temporary exhibit like the Bob Dylan, we usually find an expert, and Alan Light is a rock critic and a well-known rock historian um, and has written on numerous topics. His most recent book is actually on Johnny Cash. Um, is but he coming in to talk, by the way? Or? He was here for our opening. He okay. may be back again. Yeah. Um, we have a number of Dylan experts coming in at different times to have different um, talks because we do a lot of programs. But, um, but along with Alan Light, that then led to us being connected to all the people that he knows um, and we had a lot of voices that came together to give us a lot of information on Dylan that was very in, in, informative. Mm -hmm. So we've uh, we've touched on the influence on our, uh, our our daily lives, our culture, what about our identity? Well you know that's actually kind of a big theme throughout the um, museum and we do a lot of educational work and we tend to use that concept of identity. Um, and 
there's an, one exhibit in the museum that looks at the idea of an American voice, and it's a very chronological exhibit. It looks at 100 authors over 400 years. And we're not there to rank those authors. We're there to use them as examples of time periods and styles and genres. But they help us also to explore the idea of what is an American voice. And in that process, some of the subject matter experts and professors that we worked with um, really sat down to the notion of, you know, what what makes American writing unique? And, and three themes came out, and one was this idea of promise, the idea of the American dream. The other was the idea of edge being new, being different. Um, and the third was this idea of identity. Um, in American culture, you can't escape the idea that people have individual identity is a huge important theme but so is national identity and mm-hmm. cultural identities yeah. um, as you know waves of different groups of people have come to this country um, you can't deny the fact that each one of them brings new influences and new ideas and and becomes a part of the culture so our identity what is being what does it mean to be an American is a theme um, that we can't escape mm. um, when we look at American writing because it's a constant topic. Yeah, it's interesting the difference between Canada and and America. When when immigrants come here, they kind of cash in their old citizenship and and really become Americans. Whereas mm-hmm. in Canada, not quite uh, quite such a s- strong what identification with a national identity. Yeah, and I mean individual cultures hang on and, and keep their traditions here in the U.S. Um, and and a lot of the writing that you may read from, you know, this Mexican-American author or this Italian-American author, you know, those elements will come out if they were immigrants themselves and their stories will be different. We actually, the gallery space where our Dylan exhibit is, um, we've already started the planning for the next exhibit in there and that will open next November and it's called Becoming American uh, Immigrant and Refugee Writers in the 21st Century Mm -hmm. Um, and we'll be exploring the idea of who are the newer voices, the new immigrant stories. You know, we, we have very famous immigrant stories that go back 40, 50, 60, 100 years. Um, Like what, what? So, you know, Nabokov is a good example. Some people say, well, why is he in the American Writers Museum? Um, Because a lot of people want to say he's not American, mm-hmm. but what is the definition of American? And that's that goes back to that identity issue. Mm-hmm. Um, what, is that's the definition of, what is the definition well, of American? We kind of came down to the notion of, does the person believe they're American? And at the end of his life, Nabokov believed he was an American. He was here. He was... Well, even though he retired in Switzerland. I yeah, think, but, but he had still. come here. And, and, and one of the books that he wrote, Lolita, is a classic American tale. Um, so, you know, a lot of people, and a lot of Americans didn't live here. So you take a James Baldwin who, you know, leaves France, and, yeah. and lives in France. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a number of expats who were living in France, um, but are still uniquely American because they took that American identity with them overseas well, you and held on to it. You claim T.S. Eliot, although he left pretty early and yeah. spent his life in England, but he's still in that uh, and that's you know again people will argue sometimes over should we count this one should we count that one Mm -hmm. you know when we talk about songwriters like dylan you know um do you count john lennon Mm -hmm. um you Mm -hmm. know he's uniquely english obviously but 
toward the end of his life, he took American citizenship. He, he came here, he lived here, he was, you know, planning to spend the rest of his life here mm-hmm. in New York. Um, he actually fought to make sure that could happen, went to court when his original immigration status was denied because of an old marijuana arrest in England. He went to court and it eventually got thrown out so that he could get his citizenship. And so he was on that path. Um, so, you know, if he had been around for another 15, 20, 30 years, you know, would we have still considered him English or American at that point? Right. Um, and as you say, using your definition, mm-hmm. he thought of himself as American. Or, yeah. Or, or, or was wanted to get to that point. You mm-hmm. know, there are modern day authors, um, you know, like a, a Craig Ferguson, a comedian, you know, comic yeah, writer. He's yeah. a screenwriter. He's Scottish, um, but he became an American citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, he talked about it. He wrote a book about it. You know, it's it's not uncommon that because of this notion of people coming to America, that you have to say, well, what is an American? Well, it's somebody who thinks of themselves as an American and writes about that and um, for whom it's important where they came from and maybe they left or the fact that they came here because they wanted to be American. Yeah. I'm thinking of Auden who uh, who left because of the war but, but mm-hmm. stayed here. Yep. And uh, Christopher Hitchens loved loved America. Yeah. yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. so it's it's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon um, of trying to determine. And so there are always going to be people that you could argue one way or another. The museum strives to educate the public about American writers past and present. So how does it do that? Well, our exhibits um, are primarily focused on authors of the past, except for our changing exhibit space where the Dylan exhibit is. Everything else, um, the authors are deceased to Mm -hmm. be included. So when the content leadership team that helped to uh, make the decisions about the exhibits um, set about determining what should be included um, or who should be included, one of the determining factors was that they would be deceased. And part of that is that to look at a writer's impact on your history and culture, you have to ask yourself, well, are they done? Mm -hmm. Do we know the totality of their work? And so we may have some modern day writers like, say, a Tupac who are, you know, in the surprise bookshelf or somewhere else because they're gone. Um, But we had to make that determination to at least say that there was a a dividing line. Um, So when we promote the present, we do that primarily through programming. So we have authors in Mm -hmm. on a regular basis um, to give talks, um, dialogues. Sometimes it might be two writers in conversation. Sometimes it might be a panel. Sometimes it might be an individual just talking about their most recent work or being interviewed. And, And we'll have 100, 150 people in the museum. Um, we have a membership program, so people come if they're members. Some people buy tickets just to come to those events. We do some events off-site um, for larger authors. Um, we've got partnerships with other institutions. So, for example, Dave Eggers will be here at the end of January doing a program about his most recent book, um, but we'll be over at a place called the Standard Club, which will give us room to have a few hundred people. Um, we had Justice Sotomayor came to promote her um children's book that she put out last year and we did that at the Chicago Public Library with a group of about 700. So um, it really depends but we usually have almost an author a week is what it comes down to on average. Big names, small names, all genres. I've had programs on baseball writing, science fiction, 
science writing. So we've hosted all, all manner of writers to come through the door. That's terrific. I would have liked to have sat in on some of those meetings where you were, these various experts were working toward that list of 100. Yeah, and, and, and like I said, we're always careful to say this list of 100 and the chronological is just one example. If you flip to the other wall in that room, you get what we call the surprise bookshelf, which also has 100 authors, and they differ. Um, and those you things, mean you, you change, change them up, do you? No, no, we could change them up, and we may eventually. Okay. Um, every part of every exhibit is adjustable, mm. um, so we could pull out of here and, and pull in and put a different author. And, and so, yes, those conversations got a little heated at times. You know, in other words, there were some notions. I think the list was at 300 at one point. And they said, <laughs> okay, we want this to be X number. We want it to get down to 100. But it also had to go by period. We need at least five in this period and yeah. six or eight here. And, and so that chronologically you had enough people to really get a sense of an American voice over time. And so there were a lot of arguments, you know, oh, well, you can't really explain this period in this genre without so-and-so. And, And, uh, you know, Theodore Dreiser made the list because somebody was very loud. But, you know, that was part of it was this was a communal and somewhat democratic uh, curation process. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were a lot of people involved. Um, and they made their cases, and they said what they thought should go into it, and, and, and they were heard. And like I said, we continue to do that in our special exhibits by um, taking the time to find experts who can bring something to the field. Yeah, and I noticed that you've, you've tried to include, simply because women didn't necessarily have a voice. Yes. 150 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, you've you've worked. It looks to me like you've worked hard at trying to get representative. Uh, yeah, examples. the, the so museum it, it attempts to be emblematic and representative of the entire um, American experience, and yeah. so that does mean that at times, you know, some people may not recognize Phyllis Wheatley, but Phyllis Wheatley is well known. Um, so it's important that we talk about her, mm-hmm. um, or Paul Dunbar. So if these names aren't as common as people think they are, they were still very influential in their time. Mm-hmm. And their impact then on the timeline of you know being an early voice or the first published African-American poet, um, you know that, that's hugely important, especially when it happens 100 years before emancipation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you can say, okay, so people knew that this poet existed in that era, and and yet they were allowing this to occur in the South. So th- these are things that people have to understand. And um, so, yeah, there was a lot of effort to make sure that we told the whole story. Well, the other thing, too, is it's nice to uh, see some unfamiliar faces. You don't want to just see the same old dead white guys, you know. Yeah, so everybody's dead, but they're not all white. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and there are places where we recognize there are still not as many uh, people as you might want. We may find ways to adjust that. But as you said, when you go back 150 or 200 years, it gets harder. But it's not impossible, especially Mm -hmm. when you really dig in. And some of the literary and historical work that's being done, you know, in uh, universities around the country, there are uh, new voices that are somewhat discovered, you know, Mm -hmm. or rediscovered to some extent. 
We had a release program for, um, we had the editor of Barracoon, uh, which was the unpublished work of Zora Neale Hurston. Mm -hmm. About the yeah. slave coming. coming yes, over. it was his story. He was the mm -hmm. last slave to come to the United States um, on a ship, one of the last. And um, and so he uh, he told his story of coming over on a ship, and he told it to to Zora, and she turned it into a book, but the book was never published. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Zora Neale Hurston's works were unpublished for a while. There was a period where her work had gone quiet, and then it was picked back up, you know, probably 40 years ago. But, you know, their eyes were watching God, came back around. But these were books that were big in their day, but then somewhat forgotten and then rediscovered. So, you know, that kind of work that goes on brings things back up. And so Barracoon coming out this year, um, we had a really interesting program with the editor of that book. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it, how a hugely popular novel mm -hmm. can just disappear. And we'd never heard of it, but it was like yes. the Harry Potter of its day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's funny, too, because, you know, when you... When you have limited space, and so there are only so many authors that we can feature in the spaces that we have, and, you know, somebody will come in and tell us, you know, but what about this particular book? And, and you know, because for them, it's essential. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why we're very careful to never say we're trying to rate or rank people. No. Um, you know, and... There's you know, no evaluation. It's more representation yes yeah. and and representation from the notion of these were people who had an impact on our history and our culture mm -hmm. okay. um and uh so you know just your aunt nancy's stuff in her drawer not so important but mm -hmm. you know a writer who was published and known even if we've not thought of them in 20 years still may be important to go back and, and re-examine their impact okay Okay, uh, you, uh, you strive to, the museum strives to engage visitors in exploring exciting worlds created by the spoken and written word. How do you do that? Well, the exhibits themselves are meant to be exciting. Um, they're very tactile, they're very hands-on. Um, we get people to, you know, touch and feel. We also get them to write while they're here. You know, there are typewriters for people to hop on and, and to express themselves. Um, so mm -hmm. everything is meant to be interacted with. Mm -hmm. And then when you add to that our programming, um, where we're bringing authors in and getting people the opportunity to ask an author questions about their work, about their writing process. And the other thing we do is our educational programming. So mm -hmm. we have curriculum, actually. So when students come in from junior high and high schools on field trips, we actually have put together a curriculum that drives them to different parts of the museum, gets them to engage, gets them to write. So all of those activities are meant to, you know, get people excited and get people engaged. Mm-hmm. In exploring exciting worlds, you don't recreate those worlds. You want them to read so that they yeah. create them in their own heads. Yeah, we were looking for people to engage with the written word. Um, mm. and, and one of the things people say is, you know, we are not a place that's about books under glass. And so the difference for us is that we want you to read some words and maybe be stimulated visually and start thinking about, wow, that, that was an impact. And I'll give you an example of an exhibit. It's not really an exhibit. It's really more of an art installation. It's called the word waterfall. And so if you saw it when you were downstairs, it's a couple of walls covered in words and the light is reflecting off the words and it creates images. And as it creates images, it pulls out a quote. And so it might be a picture created out of these words of the Statue of Liberty, and then you get the Amal Lazarus quote. 
um, or it might be dollar signs and you get a George Carlin quote and it goes through this litany of things and people sit there and watch it and they absorb it and the whole idea is to make them go oh what a great line mm. and look at this visual image and look how words create imagery and so we want them to do that but then they, they can walk 20 feet from there and there are books and couches and things they can pick up not books under glass but books they can literally pick mm. up and just decide to read a few pages so you're right in the sense that we want them to discover these worlds because we want them to get excited about something that they haven't read before they haven't read in a long time and make them go back and start thinking when i leave here you know the best thing i see is when people have their phones out and are making lists you know what am i yeah. going to go home yeah. and read yep you don't have them under glass, but you have them overhead. You've got when you come in, you've got all sorts of books that are. Uh, we call it the book cloud. Okay, and, uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's really just there for display. It's there to get people attention it's it's actually kind of fun because a lot of people walk in buy a ticket and walk all the way around the whole museum before they actually look up and see it yeah. <laughs> to realize that there are all these books yeah. over their heads and uh, but it gets them excited they start looking up they start looking for the books they remember reading as a kid or long time ago and it, it really gets them excited you want to enrich and deepen appreciation for good writing there's an evaluative term, in all its forms. So how do you define good writing? Well, I think probably the, the way that you define good is its impact. And, and to some extent, the test of time. In other words, something that survives for a long time more than likely has that capacity mm -hmm. um, to influence people is something that has to have a quality to it. Yeah. Um, and, and like you said, and that's part of, part of the reason why a novel that can be a bestseller can disappear mm -hmm. um, because it may have been of interest and of topic of the day, yeah. but the quality of the written word may not be strong enough that when you go back to it in 20 years that it still engages people. Mm -hmm. and, and that is really one of the big things as far as quality. Now, we're not making huge judgments on people, but we are definitely looking at you know that longevity on a lot of things. And so when you say, what's the impact, that usually tells you. And there are other judgments that other people make, like you mentioned the Nobel in literature, the National Book Award, um, the Pulitzer. So these are things that are influential. Mm -hmm. But again, there are plenty of Pulitzer Prize winners from 30 years ago that people don't remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah, prize isn't going to do it. You want to motivate visitors to discover or rediscover a love of reading and writing. And you address that with your list. Yeah. Anecdote. Yeah, we like to see people come up and ask about, you know, we have uh, in certain cases lists where they want to know, you know, like, what are all the books in the children's mural? What are, you know, what is the, that list of 100 writers? Um, uh, the featured works tables, there are 35 featured works where you can delve down into them in depth. So um, a lot of times people want to know all of those things. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and we like them to come in and discover them. Well, coming in is, uh, it's, it's such a fun experience. Uh, I've, I've just just been through the museum, and uh, that's the one word that comes to mind right off the bat. 
Yeah, and um, and that was the intent all along. Um, our founder was a volunteer at the Library of Congress, which is a beautiful space. Who's the founder? Uh, Malcolm O'Hagan. So Malcolm O'Hagan is an Irish immigrant, uh, lives in Washington, D.C. He's retired from his profession. He was an engineer, and he worked in a, a large association for a long time as its head. And um, But he loved literature, and he volunteered at the Library of Congress. And... He went home to Ireland to visit family, and he saw the Irish Writers Museum, and he came back to the United States, and he said, you know, where's the American Writers Museum? And everybody said, there is no such thing. So he took it upon himself to Fill ask questions and, yeah. and, and get support and find experts and put all these people together to create this museum. And um, But one of the things that very early on they, they kind of talked about was that, well, if you go to the... Library of Congress, or you go to the, the old Irish Writers Museum in Dublin, and you see a book under glass, and you walk by it, what do you get out of it? And the example that he used to give was, he would give tours of the Library of Congress, and the Gutenberg Bible is there under glass, and it's open to a particular page, but it's German. Most of the people walking by it can't read it. Um, so unless they're getting a tour and somebody's explaining its significance, here's this gigantic, beautiful book but nobody really knows what it means. Mm. So they look at it and they walk away from it. No context. No context, no interaction, no learning. So the idea was that this would be a place that was meant to be fun, very much so, so that people would want to engage, so mm. that they would recognize the fun that is involved in reading um, and in writing. And so that was very key to how it was structured. The other thing was to then move away from being an artifact-based institution. Um, when we have special exhibits, we might have a couple of artifacts, but everything is meant to be interacted with a little bit more like a science museum than, say, a library. And a part of that was, let's make sure that we focus on the words and the writers and not the medium through which they came out. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of places that collect first editions, plenty of places that'll have an autographed copy of something under glass. But the truth is that America is a country founded on the written word. So if you go back to the Declaration of Independence, there's a, a really good example right there. Because people go, okay, Declaration of Independence, somewhere in Washington, D.C., in a museum, somebody tried to steal it in a movie, it's a big piece of paper, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the Declaration of Independence. Well, the funny thing about it is, when that was crafted out in calligraphy and people signed it, when they got to the point you know, on July 4th, and, and they were done, at least done enough. Not everybody's signature got on right away. There's all that. But, you know, they, they, they pretty much drafted it. Do you know where it went? From Philadelphia? From, yeah, from, from that room. Mm -hmm. Where did it go next? Beats me. Typesetter. It went to the printer. It had to be typeset immediately because they needed to print copies of it to send out to the generals and to the soldiers and they had to send it to every one of the state houses and they had to send it to all the newspapers and all the colonies they had to disseminate that as quickly as possible so it very quickly had to be typeset and it very quickly had to be printed so that piece of parchment was not important people didn't run around the country with one piece of parchment no. and a bunch of signatures on it they printed it um they typed it they printed it and they distributed it so well, the they, words they are it. important they print yeah they printed it Mm -hmm. And then the uh, signatories, they, they, they signed X number of copies, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They signed copies that went to 
um, you know, the front lines um, to validate what they were doing. Mm. Um, they sent copies to the state houses that had sent their representatives to the Continental Congress. Mm. Um, they sent copies to newspapers, you know, in every major city in all of the colonies. Copies of the signatures, not the actual signatures. No, no, yeah. just copies yeah. of, the, of the content of the Declaration of Independence sure. and those people who had signed it. Okay. And and the whole reason for that was the signatures and and the fancy calligraphy were not important. The mm. words were important. Yeah, I mean it's the idea, right? Yes, it's those ideas that have lived. Yeah, and and that's what writing is for us. It's about the words that are important and how they've lived. It doesn't matter how many different times they've been published and how many different medium, whether electronic, print, or whatever. It's good that there are people who maintain those, but those are libraries. Yeah, yeah, and I, and again, it's proof. I mean, proof yeah. is pretty important. Yeah, but and, but what's more important, the words, yeah, or the proof? The, yeah, the content, and uh, so the message is what we're interested in, mm-hmm. and that's why everything is interactive. Everything is meant to be fun. Everything is meant to be engaging because we were more about celebrating the writers as people, yeah, and the words that they use that were important, not about the physical volume of something. Yeah. Not to say that those aren't interesting. Well, that that's really the whole uh, <laughs> raison d'etre for this podcast. Uh-huh. Not the whole, not the whole. Ideas mm-hmm. are, are very important, but but we're also focused on the the book as object, just because yeah. just because it's it's fascinating and it's uh, uh, endlessly in, engaging. And there are just like the ideas that are mm-hmm. in them. And and so and that was you know one of the deciding points was. You know, which way do we go? Mm-hmm. Um, and and well, so... Well, you're we, feeling a, a need that perhaps hasn't been met in the past. Right. Is, Whereas the object, uh, pretty well every rare book library, yeah. every rare book library has objects, important and precious objects. Right. And so, you know, you can go to the Library of Congress. You can go here in Chicago to the Newberry Library. Beautiful place. Yeah. Amazing collection. Um, you know, I did a number of my studies as a graduate student at the Newberry Library. Mm-hmm. And so, um, no, I, lo- I love it. Um, and, and when we had a special exhibit, when we opened, we had um, a, a very interesting uh, conundrum. So uh, the Jack Kerouac book on the road. Okay, so when he wrote the first draft of that, famously wrote it on teletype paper, taped yeah. them together, and that was saved as a scroll. And so we had that on display in our writer's room. So where you saw the Frederick Douglass exhibit now, that was an exhibit on Jack Kerouac when we opened. Mm -hmm. The owner of that scroll is an individual, and he was nice enough to loan it to us. And we built a case, and we had about 12 feet of the scroll unrolled. We got to meet uh, Jim Canary, who is the uh, special collections librarian at Indiana in Bloomington. And he... um, He's the only person who touches the scroll. It had been in Germany before it came to us. He flew it over. He very carefully unrolled it into the case. Um, he came back when it was time to take it away. Nobody else touches it. Goes into a sealed box. It's a fascinating story. Yeah. Um, the fact that it's been preserved because it was literally typed on something that wasn't meant to be preserved. Teletype paper was meant to be mm. disposable. But Kerouac decided he wanted to type fast and he loaded the 15-foot sheets into his typewriter and he taped them all together when he was done. And there's all sorts of editing after the fact. Yes, but and there's still. pencil marks. Yeah. But what's in, so what was interesting was, so we had that on display, but because of its fragility, you can only look at it through glass in a dark room, and so you can't really see that much, but you can go, well, wow, that's the object. But 
there is a digital scan of the thing. And we created a touchscreen monitor. So we still have a digital scan of the entire 120 feet. And you can run your fingers across That's it. And you great. can zoom into it. That's and permanent or not? Yeah, we kept it. Yeah, Because we put it together based sure. on we were loaned the digital scan. And then we created the program around it and put it on a touchscreen. And so it was in there with the exhibit. And when the exhibit ended, we kept the touchscreen. And we swung it out by our typewriters. And it sits there on the wall. And people go through it every day. And they find out the story. And, and so it was really one of those things that was not planned for us to have but we kept it mm -hmm. but it's also that example of the difference between here's the object that really people can't touch or see very well mm -hmm. and can only be handled by one person and here's a digital copy of that object that people can zoom into and actually see his notes and and scroll through and go through every nook and cranny of it so you know, for us, it's about that. Mm. It's about giving people that opportunity. It's a wonderful exploration of process of a writer saying the medium through which I like to draft doesn't work for me, so I'm gonna I'm gonna jigger it. I'm gonna grab a um, the pair of scissors because the paper's too wide for my typewriter, and I'm gonna <laughs> cut up the left hand side, and then I'm gonna roll it through, and it's gonna shift, and you can physically see where the type moves on the page. So it's a great example. Mm -hmm. But as, as a piece, as a, as a great piece of history, it, it's something that people can never touch because it would literally fall apart. And so it's wonderful that we have a digital version of it that's been preserved and that people get to see. Well, and you're, you're talking like a true digital evangelist, and that's your background. So I was just looking over your background, and it's, it's, it's ideal for, for your position as, uh, as president of the museum because you've got, you've got this, this te technology and e-commerce, and uh, you've got uh, lead, leading digital and web services. It was, you know, I um, I studied literature. I worked in a book. I worked in a bookstore before I went to college. I, I actually did that for about five or six years. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it was a bookstore here in Chicago. It was one of the biggest. And um, then I went to college and I studied literature. And and then I got my master's in literature. And and um, and I studied old school. I'm studying Renaissance literature. So that was my focus. But I was of the era of the PC when it was new. Mm -hmm. So I was involved without official education in the internet and other things as they were coming to fruition and when I was studying literature I was also working in a college library and I worked in the reference department so I, I saw the internet when it was gopher I saw the internet when it was brand new and so because of that I was able to step into working in early versions of digital and e-commerce um, when there were no degrees in it and mm -hmm. you just needed to know how things worked and so I was building web pages for companies and putting together strategies for communicating on the web when it was a new concept um, and and so I did that for a number of years so yeah together all of that background makes this place an ideal place for me and well then it, shows. it was lucky <laughs> well it, well I'm sure that helped you get the position yeah but it shows there's all sorts of neat stuff you know you press here and you pull this down and you get all sorts of sort of digging deeper into into whatever author it is or book it is it's, uh, it's yeah and really a lot of this was designed in some aspect or another before I came here um, we had a design firm who was involved very early on in the process called Amaze Design out of Boston so they designed museum exhibits okay. and they designed pretty much every exhibit down there um, hmm. 
either, you know, uh, physical or conceptually and then found the programmers to work with um, to make it real. Um, when I came on, some of the materials were still in beta testing, so I was flying to Boston to beta test certain touch screens and other things, so I was able to be involved in that, which was helpful, mm. obviously, to try and work through. And there are a number of things we've done since we opened, even though we've only been open a year and a half. Mm. It's kind of funny when you get to be able to really watch people interact and realize, oh, that doesn't quite work the yeah, way we want it. Right. So we've actually reprogrammed some of the exhibits since we opened to make them easier to use, to make them a little more engaging. You know, just simple things sometimes, like there's a uh, an exhibit piece or an interactive that lets you um, vote for your favorite books and make a little digital bookmark, and you drag book covers over. And it originally had five, and we watched people struggle to come up with their fifth favorite book. So we just had it reprogrammed to just ask for three. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, because, mm -hmm. it, 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 you know, you could tell people were struggling for that fifth book and maybe putting something in just to finish, or it was timing out on them because they were really thinking about it. But yeah. when you give them their top three, mm -hmm. they're usually a lot faster at picking those. And you get to, what do you do? You get to put your co the cover on them as well? As yeah. It, How it, does that it, work? It pulls um, from the website Goodreads, the book covers oh, yes, of okay. about 20,000 books right. and, and writers. And so if you put in Twain, let's say, you'll see a whole bunch of Twain's book covers, and you just drag them over and pick your three and then hit vote. And then it tallies that and keeps a running list of visitors' favorite books. Okay. I'm a big fan of uh, book jackets, dust jackets, yeah. and I collect dust jackets and the so, yeah uh, i mean some of the artwork is absolutely yeah, yeah. amazing yeah it is richard minsky for example has done an interesting study on how book covers bring art into the household like like nothing else yeah, yeah. and early modernism uh, or examples of modernism mm -hmm. showing up in the household earlier than the actual you know paintings for example but anyway Right. Just finally, uh, you mentioned that you have a lot of school groups in here, and you also finally strive to inspire the young writers of tomorrow. So how do you do that? Well, like I said, you know, with our field trips, we, we really do have curriculum that drives people to write while they're here, so when mm -hmm. the young people are here. But even if somebody's coming with their kids or their family, there are different interactive points throughout the uh, museum that get people to play with words or to write. The typewriters are one of the things that draw people the most, especially young people who've never used a typewriter. The phrase we like to repeat the most is a young man who was playing on them. I think he was in seventh grade and he, he said, this is like an instant printer. And so they get very enamored of them. And But what it gets them to do is to actually sit there and go, oh, I can write. And there's a place they can put their stuff on the wall if they want to leave it. They can yeah. take it home. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the temporary exhibit for Dylan, there's a whiteboard where people can write lyrics or thoughts or emotions that they're having. Um, I thought there's also a there was a board where you had famed writers who reacted and, to it somehow. Well, the the writers board is um, a newer piece that we added. It's um, we've asked writers if they've come in or some writers who were supportive of the museum before it opened to give us an opening line mm. um, to something they haven't written yet. And so that's terrific. The, yeah. yeah. So we have a number on display. We have some that we haven't put up yet. And we, we want to get to a point where we have so many that we're just rotating them through on a regular basis. And um, there's an interactive touch table that has, you know, piles of words like the old magnetic poetry you'd put on your fridge. Yeah. But it's all virtual and people sit there with each other and compose 
lines of poetry or sentences and have fun with that. So throughout the museum, as much as there's written content for people to absorb about writers and their stories and their impact, um, there are also these stops along the way that get people to interact themselves, to write, to try and put down words. Because, you know, the most important thing we can do is inspire the future. Well, it's been inspiring talking to you. Thanks for uh, telling us about the museum. Sure. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Where is it? The American Writers Museum is in Chicago on 180 North Michigan Avenue, which is at the corner of Michigan and Lake. It is a second floor museum, so you just need to come in and come up to the second floor. We're open seven days a week, 10 to 5. Website address is? www.americanwritersmuseum.org. O-R-G. Thanks again. Thank you. I've been speaking to Carrie Cranston, who is the president of the American Writers Museum, based, as you just heard, in Chicago, Illinois.